All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. Jeff Benjamin here along with my co-host, Bruce Kelly. And our first guest today is Nate Geraci. He is the president of the ETF store and host of the ETF Prime Podcast. Uh, today, we're going to talk about these Bitcoin ETFs. They're actually Bitcoin futures ETFs, but they're, uh, they're the closest thing, I guess, U.S. investors have to a packaged product. But uh, we're going to let Nate uh, kind of lead the way through all that uh, that winding stuff. Nate, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Excited to be here. What a last two weeks with these Bitcoin futures ETFs rolling out. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, well, let's start with that. I mean... I, uh, I know two have launched, and we're we're Jeff really has been waiting for this a really long time, Nate. Uh, so he's really excited about this. Let me tell you. Yeah, I, I yeah, I'm I'm not I'm actually waiting for the real Bitcoin ETFs, but this is a I guess we'll learn about how this is a foot in the door, maybe. But um, so Nate, we we've got two two out there right now. They both launched uh, a week ago. Uh, and we're expecting uh, Van Eck to come out and be the third, right? Is there anything else uh, on the horizon that you see as far as these funds? There's a couple of things that I'll point out. First of all, the, the initial launch was the ProShares Bitcoin Strategy ETF, ticker BITO. And what's noteworthy about that is it became the fastest ETF to hit $1 billion in assets. It hit that mark in only two days. So the prior record was held by the Spider Gold shares, GLD, uh, that took three days back in 2004. So clearly, <laughs> there was a lot of pent-up investor demand for exposure to the price of Bitcoin. Now, the second Bitcoin futures uh, ETF rolled out this past Friday. That was the Valkyrie Bitcoin strategy ETF, ticker BTF. And they had a successful debut. Uh, last I checked, it had about 50 million in it. Now that's compared to about $1.2 billion for BITO. So it shows you the strength of the first mover advantage there, right. uh, which we've historically always seen in ETFs. But nevertheless, the Valkyrie offering to, to get to 50 million in less than a week is impressive. And as you mentioned, Bayonet will be rolling out a futures-based ETF here any day. And a footnote on that is that that product will actually undercut the other two on price. So already we're seeing a uh, quote unquote fee war break out mm -hmm. in Bitcoin futures ETF. They're undercutting the other two by about 30 basis points. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, looking forward, there, there's another seven or eight futures-based Bitcoin ETF filings in the hopper with the SEC. So uh, there are a lot of people, a lot of firms that are going to be you know, putting their, their their name in the hat, and it's going to be brutally competitive. Let's um, let's talk about what these really are, though. They're they're not like a S and P five hundred ETF or 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 even a gold ETF. They're not investing in the underlying. They're investing in futures contracts. Can you explain to our audience how that works and how that is unique? Yeah, this is a very important distinction. So these ETFs do hold futures. And the futures are CME Bitcoin futures. And the way that these will be managed is you will hold, or the ETF issuer will hold what are called front month contracts. So let's use the example. Let's assume it's November 1st. And what we're talking about the ProShares Bitcoin strategy ETF. They will hold November futures contracts. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the challenge with that is futures are not going to perfectly track the, price, the spot price of Bitcoin. 
uh, they're simply referencing that price, but they're not going to track it perfectly. And when you have a futures-based ETF, as those futures come close to expiration, the fund manager has to roll those contracts into the next month. Mm -hmm. So if I own November futures and I'm coming close to expiration, I can't let those contracts expire because I have to maintain my Bitcoin price exposure. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go buy December Bitcoin futures contracts. The problem with that is the Bitcoin futures curve is in what's called contango, where the out months are priced higher than the near months. So in other words, the December futures are priced higher than the November futures. Mm -hmm. The January futures are priced higher than the December futures. So if you think about this, what, what a fund is essentially doing is, is they are buying high and selling low because they're buying at the higher price in these out months. And as it comes close to expiration, they have to sell to then roll into the next month. And naturally what you see in, in the futures market is the price of the futures market or, or the futures contract is gonna converge to the spot price of the reference asset, in this case, Bitcoin. So um, it, it's a challenge. It, it creates what's called a negative roll yield in, in rolling these contracts and it can be a substantial headwind for the ETF. So you're essentially buying, uh, you're paying what people think Bitcoin is gonna be worth in the future, right? Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. The, now, now explain to us what happens. The, there's something also called backwardation that can happen, right? Let's, let's talk about that. With yeah. Future. So in backwardation, what you have is the near months are priced higher than the out months. And that can actually be a benefit or a tailwind to the fund, because in that case, you're actually buying low and selling high, which you like to do in investing. But right. The challenge is if you look at the, the Bitcoin futures curve right now, there are a lot of bullish expectations built into that. And that curve has for the most part historically been in contango. Doesn't mean it can't flip to backwardation. Uh, from my perspective, I just don't see that happening anytime soon. Not long-term anyway. And that's another point about this is that, and I've always said this about any of these futures-based funds, they are trading vehicles, not investing vehicles. I would agree with that. However, we can have a discussion about why there's so much demand in a product like BITO, because I think what it speaks to is a subset of investors and financial advisors who have been clamoring to have some price exposure to Bitcoin, and they haven't been otherwise able to access it. Mm -hmm. And you know, a key point here is an ETF that's very neatly within traditional financial services plumbing. So if I have a Charles Schwab account, and I have my stocks and bonds in that account, and I want to allocate to Bitcoin, historically, there hasn't been a way for me to do that outside of some of these uh, private trusts that trade over the counter, such as the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, ticker GBTC, which we can certainly talk about, that presents its own issues. But if, if I want exposure to the price of Bitcoin, and I think Bitcoin is going to go higher, or I think the benefits of owning Bitcoin, uh, that, that it's additive to a portfolio, some, some investors and advisors may say, hey, it's worth having this negative performance drag to still have the potential upside price exposure to Bitcoin or the, the potential additive benefits to a portfolio. So I think we're still going to see demand from longer term buy and hold type investors. Now, to your point, who, who are these products probably better suited to? Certainly traders, right. uh, because they're going to really capture the price of Bitcoin movements much more closely than somebody holding this longer term because of that, that negative performance drag we, we discussed earlier. But I do think we're going to see a, a decent chunk of longer term investors 
buy these products. Mm -hmm. What I want to ask you about something that was kind of an anomaly that came out right after the ProShares launch is uh, Invesco. They were uh, widely expected to be among the first to launch one of these products, and they pulled their filing at the last minute. I, I think when I talked to you uh, most recently, you didn't have any idea why. I reached out to them, and they didn't give me. They gave me a no comment. Um, let, let's talk about, talk about how curious that is and what you think that might mean. I think it's one of the great ETF mysteries of the past few years because Invesco was slated to launch on the same day as ProShares. They actually filed for a Bitcoin futures ETF on August 4th, which was a day after SEC Chair Gary Gensler effectively messaged to the market that the SEC would be open to a futures-based ETF. And so... They, you know, they were in a pretty good position here. My, my senses, and, and I don't have any inside information, is that for whatever reason, they were unable to launch on the same day as ProShares. Mm -hmm. And they felt like ProShares getting that first mover advantage uh, was just, it was too big of an advantage and one that they didn't want to compete with. That's complete speculation on my part. But it, it is odd because they were in a good, a good spot. And if you think about Invesco and their ETF business, they are a leader in futures-based ETFs. They have the largest futures-based ETF in ticker PDBC, which mm -hmm. is a broad commodity basket ETF. So this, this fits nicely into their product lineup. And uh, I, I, I'm surprised. It, it, it doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to put the official invite out to Invesco if they want to come on the podcast and, and tell us their rationale or, or, or tell us something about what they're thinking. As I would love Bitcoin. to hear the backstory on that. Yeah. Um, Bruce, what's, uh, what, I know you're a big Bitcoin investor, Bruce, What uh, what do you, what do you got for uh, Nate? Uh, thanks, Jeff. I, I, uh, Nate, how is it, um, how are these uh, e uh, ETFs that invest in these futures different from, say, a grayscale Bitcoin trust? You know, I walked earlier through the fact that these own futures contracts, because right. they're not going to perfectly track the spot price of Bitcoin because they're rolling contracts. GBTC, the way that that's structured, it is a private trust that is initially only available to accredited investors. And the way that it works is an accredited investor can go to Grayscale and either deliver Bitcoin or cash and in return receive shares of GBTC. Those shares have a six-month lockup period. In other words, they can't do anything with those shares for, for a period of six months. Right. Once that lockup period ends, they can sell those shares over the counter. OTC market where anybody can buy them. So right. anybody who has access to a Schwab or Fidelity or E-Trade account can go buy shares of GBTC. The, the problem is there's no open-ended creation redemption mechanism like an ETF has. And so because of that, the, the product effectively trades like a closed-end fund and can trade at substantial premiums or discounts. Right. Last I checked, it was at a 15 to 20% discount. And if you look over the course of this year, it has significantly trailed the spot price of, of Bitcoin. So it's just simply an imperfect product. Now, what I will say is Grayscale deserves some credit because they brought that product to market years ago. Nothing else existed. And to a certain degree, they've helped pave the way here to bring access to Bitcoin to everyday investors. I think they should be applauded for that. They've also tried to bring a spot Bitcoin ETF to market, actually filed back in 2016, a few years after the Winklevoss twins initially filed for the first Bitcoin ETF in, in 2013. 
So they've tried, but of course the SEC hasn't. GBTC is just, it's a flawed product uh, in itself. I would say Bitcoin futures ETFs are flawed products. My next question is regarding leverage. How much, and with certain products, there's kind of a standard for the amount of leverage that the manager can take, uh, can use rather, um, uh, when investing. Do these uh, uh, futures, uh, Bitcoin futures, ETFs, do they have any uh, internal rules? They are using leverage, but perhaps not in a manner that people think. They're, they're fully collateralized. And the, the way these work is they- And that they means have, what, fully collateralized? Okay, so they have Cayman Island subsidiary set up that actually hold the futures contracts, uh-huh. 25% allocation. That subsidiary um, is where- they are taking on the leverage. So let's say they want to get exposure to, to Bitcoin futures. You have a 25% allocation. They'll lever up three to one. So, so there's no there's no leverage in the sense that uh, you know it, it's it's a 200% or two times leverage ETH. It's just that they are taking on leverage with the actual futures exposure within that Cayman subsidiary. And the reason they're using that Cayman subsidiary is it avoids having to issue a K1 first and foremost, which can be a tax nuisance to end investors. Uh, but, but also this entire structure fits within the 1940 Act uh, investment wrapper, which the SEC likes. And that gets back into this discussion around why do they approve futures-based ETFs versus physical ETFs? And the short answer is, uh, num- number one, CME Bitcoin futures are regulated by the CFTC. And that gave the SEC comfortability that they could surveil that market for fraud and manipulation. The so it's, it just sounds like the leverage is limited. That is hundred percent. Yep. It is limited. Yeah. And finally, Nate, um, before I turn you back to Jeff, um, are, you know, who, who is selling this product? I'm always interested in that. Where does an advisor have to sit in order to invest his or her clients in this? And then also what, what is your, I'm sure you're tapped in, what are the compliance people at these big firms thinking about this type of product? Because products take time, right, to get approved. Yeah, it's a, a, it's a great firm. question. So first of all, clearly the beautiful thing about ETFs is they're accessible by anyone anywhere. So anyone with access to a, a brokerage account can access the ETFs. Now, to your point as to whether or not some of the wirehouses may gate access to these, absolutely, that's, that's a possibility. And I'm sure that there are a- But you don't know as of yet. I don't know that you know, okay. at this point in time, okay. but, but I'm sure that that's occurring. Hey, uh, Nate, uh, speaking of leverage, didn't <laughs> Valkyrie file to uh, to launch a levered uh, Bitcoin futures ETF? Just they did, and the SEC uh, didn't like that very much from the reports <laughs> that are out there, which I got to tell you, I have a little bit of a problem with, uh, just from the sense that- With the product the, or with the SEC? Um, I think with the SEC's- uh, reasoning here, because if you think about this, the SEC has blessed CME Bitcoin futures. They said right. it is okay for an ETF to hold those. And I look at other ETF products that hold futures contracts, and guess what? There are leveraged versions of those. As a matter of fact, the SEC right. just a few weeks ago uh, greenlit a leverage VIX product and an inverse VIX product. So, you know, I asked myself, what's the difference here? Uh, just a heads up that uh, the Valkyrie Fund it does have leverage in the name. It's named uh, the filing anyway is Valkyrie XBTO Levered BTC Futures ETF. So uh, 
They're flying the flag loud and proud. But uh, Nate, uh, one final thing I want to ask you was about the uh, the idea that these futures ETFs are kind of a foot in the door. And I think, as you put it to me when we talked recently, that they're that the futures uh, funds are almost like placeholders because if we ever get a real Bitcoin ETF. Uh, money's probably going to fly out of these funds, 100%. right? 100%. I think when a physical Bitcoin ETF is approved, assets will completely shrivel in the futures-based product because of what we discussed before. A physical Bitcoin ETF is going to track the spot price of Bitcoin near perfectly. Uh, now, when will that happen? Well, as I was alluding to earlier, the reason the SEC allowed Bitcoin futures ETFs to market is because they're comfortable that futures are regulated by the CFTC. And they like these being in a 1940 Act investment wrapper, which offers some additional investor protection. Their concern with a physical Bitcoin ETF is that if they can't properly surveil them, then they can't spot fraud and manipulation. Until they get comfortable with that, I don't see how they get comfortable with a, a physical Bitcoin ETF. I do think the futures-based products are a step in the right direction. And those had to happen before a spot ETF uh, would come to market, at least from the SEC standpoint. I disagree with that, but I, I get from the SEC standpoint. So I think what it comes down to is the SEC getting comfortable uh, just from a regulatory framework standpoint in underlying crypto exchanges and in, in, in that spot market. When that happens, then a physical Bitcoin ETF will be approved. <laughs> I would be surprised if we saw a physical Bitcoin ETF approved before the end of next year. Okay. Uh, I've become more pessimistic only because of Gensler's recent comments. He's really driving home this point that they have concern about fraud and manipulation in the underlying spot market. Until I see a change in tenor from him on that, it's, it's tough for me to be optimistic. That said, there are people that are close to the industry. Yesterday, we saw Grayscale's head of ETF, David Lavelle, came out publicly and said that he would expect a spot ETF to be approved by July, 2022. Wow. And I've seen some other even more bullish predictions from other people within the industry. So I, I can't rule it out. I, I should probably not offer predictions anymore because I've been predicting a Bitcoin ETF since 2013 when the Winklevoss twins first filed. Uh, so, but, but Eventually like you'll be to, right. That's, what, I, uh, that's the new strategy yeah. that I'm, I'm taking here is I'm just gonna keep predicting it to happen and then I'll, I'll do a victory lap when it finally does. Well. Well, here's my prediction. If there is no Bitcoin ETF uh, launched before the end of next year, I've got uh, I got Bitcoin at 85,000. What do you think of that, mate? You good there? <laughs> okay, I'm not in the prediction of uh, or in the business of making price predictions, especially on Bitcoin. But it's fun. Um, <laughs> it is. My crystal ball is just completely broken. Yeah. All right. Well, Nate, we're going to let you jump, get back to your uh, your busy days. Uh, check out Nate uh, Jersey on his podcast, ETF Prime. Good stuff. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. So when it comes to advisory sector M&A, how do potential partners assign a value to your firm? Hosted by Allworth Financial's co-founder, Scott Hansen, the State of the Industry podcast has devoted several recent programs to explaining how firms are valued and specifically what you need to do to get your asking price or even equity in a partner firm. Here's a tip today. Selling price is no longer tied merely to the amount of assets you have under management. Things to consider include your client retention rates, your firm's overall culture, whether you have organic growth or whether you are more client focused, 
or even more of a market timer. These things matter, and they are just some of the factors Scott Hansen goes in, into in detail on the State of the Industry podcast. All Worth State of the Industry podcast. You can find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or, all, or at allworthpartners.com. Okay, we're back, everybody, uh, with our second segment here. We have longtime veteran industry recruiter Danny Sarch, president of Leitner Sarch, uh, his headhunting firm, as our guest and a guy who knows the business just about as well as anybody. He's been recruiting for years, decades, and um, I just wanted to uh, speak to Danny a little bit about something I wrote or noticed and, and wrote about um, recently. But first, before we get into all that, uh, just want to say, hey, Danny, how are you today? I'm fine, Bruce. Thank you very much for both complimenting me and, and noticing how old I must be. So there, there, I appreciate it. And of course, we got our, our good friend, Jeff Benjamin, um, here uh, as, as well to chat with you. And Danny sent you along this, this piece that I wrote, these comments by James Gorman, who's the CEO of Morgan Stanley, and Charlie Scharf, uh, the, who's the new more recent CEO of, of Fargo. And they were asked about, they're always asked about, you know, advisors and recruiting on these, on these uh, calls with analysts during the earnings days and the like. <clears throat> and um, Gorman was touting up his acquisition of, Morgan Stanley's acquisition of a 40 billion retirement plan type um, uh, firm out on the West Coast. And, and Scharf was talking about something that Wells Fargo mentions a lot, which is their various channels, you know, that they have for advisors. Yeah. And they made comments that were kind of interesting um, in comparing themselves to RIAs. And I'll just quickly go there. Um, uh, Gorman was kind of pleased that this team, highest it's called, the 40 billion team, is an RAA type team. And then Scharf has said, that they were underinvested in their independent advisor business. But at the meantime, the, these guys don't wanna have anything to do with RIAs. RIAs have been stealing their brokers. To you, what is this kind of push-pull between the wirehouses wanting to be in the RIA business, which is the growth business, right? And, but not wanting the competition at the same time. You're, you touch on a whole bunch of things. Uh, first part, as a corporation, the economics on the RA side without the broker-dealer side are, are really different. Uh, so what that means is, is the, the, it's the idea that an RA is totally conflict-free, which is mostly true. Uh, it's not as pure as, as I think the RAs would want you to believe, but certainly they don't have underwriting and they don't have any product factoring right. and you know, all those other things, and they're not holding inventory of bonds, they're being serviced by the street. But uh, so, but at the, at the core, they're the same in terms of they're both in the wealth advice business, yes. or the wealth management business. And to the average wirehouse advisor, candidly, I think the, the idea of independence is just seen as a big blob. And, they, and it's, I know this from talking to so many of them about the differences, they don't really understand it. The, the word independent covers such a range of types of firms from supported independent independence to pure independent that the, it's very confusing to the average warehouse advisor. But as a, a threat as a different model, they are paying attention 
you know, if we go back to, uh, you know, 20 years ago, the, the advisors who went independent were really the failed advisors. You know, there were ads in the back of the old Register Rep magazine, and, and they were seen as the, the advisors who could not make it in the wirehouse world went independent. And I think that changed post-financial crisis, right. where uh, the brands got diminished so much, and at the same time, the capabilities technology-wise came up so much on the independent side where now well, the golden handcuffs also went away right the golden that, that, all true the golden, golden handcuffs made the stock easier. options became worthless or near worthless so no no questions uh, that was part of it too uh, i think a lot of it was the world switched from a client server getting into technology of which i and i know you are not experts but you know it used to it used to have these giant mainframes that crunched the numbers and the idea of cloud-based computing and internet-based computing essentially if I can use the word democratize, essentially the capabilities where uh, down to the investor level, you can have the same capabilities on your desktop as the most sophisticated money manager. So certainly the independent advisor could have that those capabilities right. too. So all, but what's the stance right now between the wirehouses and the RAAs with all that history? I, I think that they're now seeing it as true competitors because they're losing clients at the client right. level to to the RIAs, which never happens, right? So and the have, wirehouses have the most wealthy clients you know, on average, typically. I, I think that's the, the, this, you know, if you look at it as the size of the organization and the size of the channel, I don't think there's any question. But if you look at a given RIA practice, because they have clients just as wealthy as the wirehouses, right. if not wealthier. So uh, what I mean is I, I see that when a client leaves as well as an advisor leaving, and obviously sometimes that's together, they're not losing people to the other wirehouses as often. They're now losing it, I, I don't know what the numbers would be, but I'd say at least half of the time when you see somebody depart Morgan Stanley or Wells Fargo, they're going to an independent type channel or a smaller firm. So they're not, uh, the wirehouses are not eating each other's or cannibalizing each other nearly as much as they used to be. You guys still report on it and others do, but it's not happening nearly as much. And then the aggregators are creating uh, these firms that in certain ways uh, are as large as the wirehouses are becoming that large. It's one of those ironies that break away from the wirehouse in order to seek their own business and, and to seek their own as entrepreneurs. But then to cash in, they end up selling to a mega organization that looks a lot like the organization that they originally yeah. left. I just found it so fascinating that, that Gorman would actually men mention LPL, he called it Linsco Private Ledger by name and say, yes, we have been losing some of our smaller brokers to the Linsco Private Ledgers. You know, for a CEO to name check a competitor- Who's like also that, public, right? Who 10 or 20 years ago, Gorman would have nothing to do with, right? I mean, they, they are, they have more advisors, unless I'm mistaken, LPL has more advisors than Morgan Stanley. Yes. So it, it's hard. It's hard to ignore their average production production is much less, uh, but obviously they're succeeding at a certain level. And I think that's true. Uh, analysts ask me often that I that I talk with, you know, how come we never see reporting on the people that OPL hire? And I think that the answer is usually it's smaller producers that the trade press, you guys included, don't feel are newsworthy enough. Uh, so you don't see the numbers, even though they're happening, because you see that their numbers increasing. And yeah, I mean, training. an LPL broker would probably do, in terms of revenue, a half to a third, right, of what a Morgan Stanley advisor would do. Uh, Morgan, yeah, I guess that's right. I mean, if a Morgan Stanley, if the average Morgan Stanley guy is roughly a million bucks, 
right on their numbers i think what you're saying is exactly yeah, yeah it's gotta be lpl something like three four five hundred thousand something like that yeah, yeah and and danny um those people that are are asking about lpl's hires should get on their mailing list because we get about an email a day from them <laughs> about somebody that I, I kid you not it is daily that's interesting uh, they're, jeff they're, they're all they not hear, big they hear you say that but they don't re, you don't guys don't report well them. we have we have our thresholds because we get so many ah, so uh okay. only only we only we get dozens a, a week size announcements. yes we I get mean, we get so many yeah. but we get about a daily one from from lpl i mean they're they're, they're not, not we can get two or three in a week from lpl jeff yeah. right on average and, 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 and they obviously are not only sending it to you so it's not only to you that are feeling it's not newsworthy the other one the other your competitors obviously don't think so either it's interesting <laughs> yeah um, jeff anything else do, for danny yes i do um we do we do collate them though and we track them and uh we have uh, Brittany grimes who actually keeps a, a running list of all these we moves, put them in the so, database i think right right, right. So you tell your uh, you tell your buddies, Danny, to uh, to get on that investmentnews.com uh, and uh, we'll have all their answers. Um, yeah, Danny, a couple of questions for you quick. When you started off, you said that you you think you don't think most wirehouse reps really understand the RIA model. I find that surprising because the the trend toward breakaway has been around for years and there are so much effort and information to reach out. I mean, we had two summits this year just on that market. <laughs> I mean, people have to be paying it. Uh, How Jeff, can they I'm not, not saying, know? I'm not saying they don't know. I, I just think the nuances, you know, I'll give you a specific example. This week, when I when I would say to somebody, well, you don't have to keep your Series 7 and your broker's license. It was mm -hmm. if I was, you know, talking about, you know, a, a physics formula to the guy, right? It was, <laughs> it, it, it was, it really... It really was startling to him. So that's what I mean. I, 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 they understand independence. They understand uh -huh. that RIA. They understand what a fiduciary is. Um, uh, my personal bias is I think the difference is more about the ethics of the individual than it is the model. Um, and, and many of them want to be in a model where they feel it's it, it's conflict free, except when you say that you you know cannot do anything then on commission, and they feel that there are certain clients that want it, and then they have to make some kind of compromise around that. Mm -hmm. which many of the RAs do. So my point is the word independence is, is too broad and doesn't encompass everything. And even if you say RIA, you've got a big public company focus, you've got Hightower, you've got Dynasty, which is different models of sports <clears throat> right. um, and, and a whole bunch of others. So, you know, the, there are giant ones like Mercer and, and I don't have to tell you guys, you know, the name. So I, I, my point is that they don't get steward partners um, who I have a personal right. fondness for. It, they don't understand how working for XYZ is different from ABC versus mm -hmm. their responsibilities of being on their own. And each and, of those firms you named, Danny, does have their own business model. I mean, each of those large no question. aggregators, I mean. you know, they're bank funded, they're private equity funded, they're firm funded, Agreed. you know, and, and, and they the do market externally, marketing internally, you know, all that kind of stuff. And the level of true independence varies depending upon what you do. So that's what I mean, Jeff, in that explaining to somebody, you know, what they want to do. Okay. Uh, there's a difference between freedom and there's a difference between independence. So at a wirehouse, they have the, the most restraints on how you market yourself and how you price yourself. And it's often what finds these, what these guys find their way to the regional firm. Uh, you know, Raymond James, uh, who I'm fond of, and Janney, who I'm also fond of, and others, because the regional firms 
give them a lot more freedom, but they don't have independence. So what they're really looking for is the ability to uh, market themselves and price themselves they want, but they still want to be fully supported. That's the difference between freedom and independence. Now, they want to be able to turn the lights. They want to be able to wear flip-flops to work. They want to be able to truly create their own culture and hire and fire the way they want. Then they want some form of independence. And then they're still independent broker-dealer. Um, and, and there are a whole host of choices there. And then if you want to go to the RA space, which includes a, a, a pretty big compliance responsibility that they can outsource, but it's something they have to pay for. And that becomes a challenge. So it really, at some point they get scared. And that's the reason why, even though the RA space is growing, it, it's not like uh, you know, you've watched Morgan Stanley's numbers go from uh, wherever there are, 13 or 14,000 to 5,000 because 9,000 people have joined the RA space. Mm -hmm. So it, it really, it, it's in every conversation that I have, but it doesn't mean that it's right for everybody. Right. Well, on the issue of freedom, all I know is it's just another word for nothing left to lose. <laughs> but um, <laughs> That's a great line. So, yeah, it is. Wow. Me and Bobby <laughs> McGee. But, but anyway, I, I want to go back to another thing you said, uh, Danny, is um, you talked about, you know, the, the aggregators becoming bigger. These guys leave because they don't want to be with it. Or these people leave because they don't want to be with a giant firm and they end up with a giant firm. I still think there's some big distinctions, not even subtle distinctions between these aggregators and the wirehouses. I mean, and you mentioned them early on, two things, products and underwriting. You know, there's, it's not really like going to a wirehouse just because they have a lot of employees. Right. Uh, uh, you know, of course, in certain ways, they're more alike than you think, mm -hmm. Jeff. Right. So when you join some of these RAs, it truly is your practice within a bigger firm. Well, what does yeah, that sound like? I, I like hear what you're saying. And then and then in certain firms, you they really want you to to merge your process into what they do. And at some point, move your practice into, you know, the greater firm. And in some cases, there are RAs that truly pay their people on salary and bonus because of that even though the bonuses are, are more transparent and based upon what you and I might call production or the revenue that they bring mm -hmm. in from their people. So uh, it, 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 they really it's... are more alike than you think and more alike than I think the RIA channel would want you to know when you join a much bigger place. But again, that's very different from you know starting off a, a, and breaking away on your own, which many do and stay that way for a long time. But also... Uh... And I, I agree with your saying on, on that about the, the similarities, but there are also choices in different types of models, which is what I think is so interesting. Um, if you're if you are breaking away, there seem to be so many different ways you could do it. And and maybe a lot of them do go to the kind of a, a pseudo second mothership because there is so much provided. And, and a lot of it is on the trans, Jeff, which is mm -hmm. which is I think is not talked about enough. Uh, one of the things that I wish that there would be the type of transparency that when you guys report on a big move uh, for us to see a year later what the person you know really has brought with them and 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 in terms of clients because it's it's one of the mantras that I've said I've said this to Bruce many times nobody ever hires anybody bad and nobody ever loses anybody good right so uh, <laughs> you know it, it's really really hard to move a practice in secret and to start a business in secret. Unfortunately, that's the way of the world for these guys. It's not like they walk into their manager's office and give two-week notice. Clients are often caught in, the, caught in the crosshair. So just imagine, put yourself in their shoes and, and realize how, how big a decision this is. So there's all the nuances in moving up practice and making sure you're doing right by the client and setting it up properly so the clients are happy. And then you have to 
you know, a sign an office lease and you have to get office furniture. And, you know, we go on and on and on about the, getting the technology set up. Um, when are you going to put the name on the door? You're going to put the name on the door after they resign? Well, okay, that's, you have to do that, but you better get that sign person there at the same time because somebody can walk by, get off of the wrong floor or looking for a, a bathroom and, and see, you know, a name on the door. So right. uh, it, it is a frightening prospect because of that. And, and it's a shame that this industry is not held in the same regard as a medical practice or a CPA or an attorney practice where this type of thing does not happen. Um, you know, the idea that, uh, that your doctor will, will, you know, won't send over re your medical records to the new doctor when you move from a primary care physician is, is laughable. Yet that's what happens every day in the financial services business. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. Well, you're always so much fun to talk to, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think to the, one of the points that I think that is that Jeff raised is that there are so many different types of RIA aggregators, right, to jump to. I mean, think about if you sold, you were an independent RIA, you sold to uh, United Capital and Joe Duran in, you know, 2012 or 2014, and then Joe Duran turns around and sells United Capital to Goldman Sachs, you know? Great, Bruce, it's a great point. And the other part- You're back is, on Wall Street again, well, you know? And when you sell, it's different than when you join as an employee. This is another, you know, secret yes you get capital gains benefits and all those things and life-changing sometimes money but it's a one-way street there is no out right you did not hear of united capital advisors uh not joining goldman it was a one-way street uh documents that they signed with united right. capital when that first happened um, and those advisors with their clients they could still leave but they could not move those clients um, there were very strict covenants around that that they received consideration for and legal advice about. So it's very different than an at-will employee who leaves from one firm and going to another. So uh, I bring that up because, again, it's one of those deep, dark secrets that it's not like it's, you know, <laughs> it's not as simple. If I remember, you know, Focus Financial had that, uh, I think you guys covered it, had that partner firm that was unhappy with them, but they couldn't leave. Uh, as clearly as others, right? It became a subject of litigation. So um, it, it's it, it's another part of the selling out, if you will, or being bought out 100% that is not often publicized uh, because it becomes a one-way street. It, it, it was one of the reasons why, you know, Focus, which did deal in a certain way with the, with the breakaway movement, but you didn't see that as often. You saw more often that they just just other RAs outright right. because the the advisor at the wirehouse typically that that wanted this didn't want it to be an absolute like you're stuck. And look, stuck could is a, is a, there are many of those firms. I, I, that's a pejorative statement, but the point is it's a one way street. Go with your eyes open and understand that um, you're selling, and there are consequences to it, which are very clearly stated in the document. Since 2009 or 2010, it's a, more, a thousand or more people have been leaving the wirehouse side of the industry, while the independent and uh, BD and RAA sides have been getting 500 or more or a thousand or more over that same period of time. So it might be the smaller brokers. It might not be as James Gorman would like you to think, you know, it might be the least attractive brokers. But you know, it's a, it's a it's a long term drip of people who move. You know, there, every there, year. 
there, there's no doubt, Bruce, right? And look, the, the big thing, the big challenge in the industry remains related to that is that the industry is failing to train and there aren't enough young people be getting, going into right. business because it's harder than ever to start. So they're fighting over the same pool of people ultimately. And that's why as an industry, it's shrinking. And, and therefore those numbers become more apparent uh, when the RA channel is growing, albeit slowly, Wirehouse channel is, is shrinking because many people are just retiring. And so much of what Gorman's strategy is, is keeping his people there and their books locked in, which is a subject of a much longer conversation. That's a whole nother issue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but look, the, the succession planning thing, the age of right. the RIA uh, alpha dog, if you will, is also up there. So that's why you're seeing the M&A frenzy because they want to sell out. And the question is, for all these channels, will the advisor, excuse me, will the client stay with successor to the alpha dog? Right. Thank you, Danny. Great talking always, to you as always. It was a pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you. Launching every Monday, it's the Invest News Podcast. We want to thank our sponsor, All Worth Financial and the State of the Industry Podcast. We also want to thank our special guests, Nathan Jarashi and Danny Sarch. We also want to thank Angelica Hester, our producer. And you can find the podcast, of course, at investmentnews.com, as well as Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please leave us a review on Apple and follow us on Spotify. If you want to reach out to Jeff, find him on Twitter, and his handle is at Benji Ryder. Mine is at BD News Guy. Stay tuned, and we'll be talking to you next week.